this is Patrick Daly and welcome to Interlinks. Interlinks is a program about international business and globalization and the effects these have had on our life, our work and our travel over recent decades. Today on Interlinks, we're going to be taking a deeper dive into the world of the supply chain with a group of international experts, all colleagues of mine from the supply chain special interest group at the Society for the Advancement of Consulting. We're already hearing a lot about supply chains in 2021 uh, in this part of Europe, especially because of the effects of Brexit and the many supply issues and import and export challenges between the UK and the EU. And supply chain is also in the media globally uh, with the focus on the rollout of the various COVID vaccines. And another crucial element of supply chains over the last 20 years or so has been the growing role of China and its transformation into the factory of the world. And as we have today on the podcast, a group of individuals from North America, Australia and Europe, three regions with extensive economic and supply chain links to China that are undergoing change for multiple economic, political and geopolitical reasons right now. So we're going to talk about that. So to discuss these issues, I'm delighted to be joined by uh, Rebecca Morgan, president of Fulcrum Consulting Works in Cleveland, Ohio in the US. Welcome, Becky. Thank you. I appreciate joining this group. Thanks, Becky. David Ogilvie, CEO of David Ogilvie Consulting based in Brisbane in Queensland, Australia. Welcome, Dave. Thank you, Patrick. And Evan Butler of Evan Bulmer and Associates, uh, located in Grange near Adelaide in South Australia. Welcome, Evan. Thank you, Patrick. You're very welcome. So thanks to you all again for being here, here with us today. And thanks especially to you guys from Australia who are joining us at something like, I think, what, 2 a.m. in the morning in the middle of summer, right? Correct. It's 1 a.m., yes. <laughs> okay. Thanks. Thanks for that. this, Patrick. Okay. So, Becky, uh, if I could start with you. As, as you know, uh, in Europe, particularly in the northwestern part of the continent, all of us in supply chain are all adjusting to the reality of Brexit since the, the 1st of January. So w- one example of the change within arrangements and free trade blocks around the world has also been the change in NAFTA, which now I think is called um, USMCA. So how, how have these changes impacted manufacturing supply chains in the, in the U.S. and uh, North America? Well, to many degrees, they have not impacted it much at all. Uh, NAFTA and its replacement have way more similarities than differences. So there are some very specific changes, but the broad impact is really non-existent just in the change in that relationship. Now, with everything else going on, there have been a lot of other changes, but uh, the redefinition of NAFTA has not driven significant change here at all. In terms of what Brexit in EU is doing here, some companies here had distribution centers in England, and they have to rethink that. And to sadly, to some degree, they spent a lot of time thinking about what to do about it instead of planning and executing what to do about it. So while many of those warehouses and distribution centers are still in England, I would guess within 12 months, a lot of that will be completely reassessed. Okay. Yeah, we're seeing uh, some unexpected consequences of Brexit. So, for example, many European companies have distribution centers in the UK, as you said. So let's say it's a company in Germany. And for whatever reason, because it was more efficient, the distribution center for all of the European Union was in, in the United Kingdom in some place. 
So they would send product to there that was later distributed to other European countries, whether Ireland or France or so on. But it now turns out that when a product goes into the United Kingdom and isn't substantially changed, it takes the advantage of the free trade entry under the new free trade agreement when it enters the UK, but it cannot do that on the exit. And therefore, you you have the anomaly of an EU-made product that's distributed from the UK back to the EU and is liable for tariffs. And that's something that has emerged in the last week and a half and is causing lots of headaches. Um, and there's a particular sweet product uh, that children like that's made in Germany, distributed from the UK. And now it can't be it can't be got here in Ireland anymore because of these issues. So um, maybe go over to you, Dave. In, I guess, Australia these days does uh, most of its business in Asia, but still has strong links, uh, cultural, political and trade to Europe and North America. So how have supply chains changed in Australia over the last four or five years, say, in response to trade wars and uh, the development of China and now with COVID? So, you know, is Australia kind of looking at self-sufficiency or becoming some sort of free trade champion in Asia Pacific? Well, it's interesting, Patrick. There's been a lot of talk about reshoring manufacturing, uh, I think, all around the globe because of the political tensions with China and so forth. But the practicalities of actually reshoring manufacturing back into this country uh, is probably going to be quite remote, to be brutally frank. It's it's more of an ideal than it is going to be a practical reality. Um, I think there are a lot of roadblocks to, to actually bringing manufacturing back to this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, the labour costs being the least, uh, it is certainly one of them, but uh, there are a significant number of countries out there in the world where lower cost labour is, is possible. There's lots of opportunities in places like Vietnam and Cambodia and Indonesia and those sorts of places to get away from China. So I don't think that's actually going to happen. Uh, I think Australia's manufacturing future really needs to go up the value chain in, in some respects. We need to be able to become an exporter of high-tech type manufacturing. We need to be able to use the high-value-add component of, of manufacturing. If, if, we're, if we're just relying on cheap labour, uh, it's never going to come back to you, I don't think. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Evan, we kind of have this idea in this part of the world, at least, that Australia is kind of an exporter of um, raw materials. Is that fair, Evan, or is there more to it than that? To, to a certain degree, it is fair. You know, mm-hmm. Australia has a big extraction industry and China's a big buyer of our uh, minerals and what have you. What's interesting to me is, you know, if we'd been talking about this three months ago, I think I might have had a different view about how Australians viewed China to even now, because China has undertaken to ban a number of our exports to its country. For example, crayfish. South Australia is known for lobster here and the Chinese buy it all up effectively. Right now, I'm happy to say that I can get restaurant grade um, lobster for a very cheap price um, (laughs) in Adelaide. So there is some benefits to this. But China doing this what seems arbitrarily to the Australian people or certainly politically motivated because we've asked them on an international stage, Australia has, you know, where did the virus come from? And that hasn't gone well for us in terms of our relationship with China. Okay. And the brutal way that China has dealt with us as a result, I think has opened Australia's eyes to what's been probably going on for a while in this country. Our over-reliance on China now comes to bear. I think this is exciting for our country, by the way. Um, Because what you're seeing now is businesses going, well, we can't export to China. Where else can we send our produce to? Um, I think we'll be stronger as a result. 
you know, and I'm also thinking in relation to your Brexit conversation, you know, from an Australian point of view, it would be nice to deal with the United Kingdom again. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, think, I think also um, Australia is in negotiations uh, regarding a free trade deal with the European Union, which I think might be even more advanced than the conversations with the UK. That, that wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> mm-hmm. So do you, see, do you see Australia becoming or wanting to become more self-sufficient in its region to insulate itself from China? Or do you see it becoming some sort of, you know, like a global free trade champion or a champion of free trade in, in, in the Asia-Pacific region? Well, I mean, I think what Australia has to do and does pretty well is as a small country, we play amongst some superpowers. So, I mean, US is a strong ally of ours and China is a strong trading partner of ours. And so we've just got a delicate position as Australians to play that game between those two superpowers. I I think we've been caught up in that crossfire because of the way China's dealing with us from a trade point of view, but that too will pass. You know, she'll get tired of have us and, and change tact at some point. You know? I guess I guess China ultimately must want to know what the original, the true source of COVID is, right? Because they don't want it to happen again either. So I, guess. I don't. I don't think. I mean, I think we've got to separate the Chinese people and the Chinese government. I'm not sure you know, the Chinese government um, is truthful at all times. Mm. So, um, I think that's something Australians have got to kind of get their head around that that China isn't a benevolent superpower, and that the trade between our two countries hasn't been even. I mean, the Chinese can invest in here and, and do, and that's being scrutinised much closer now. Yeah. Um, it's been impossible for Australians to go over and invest in China. Um, that's, everyone that's, that I've seen go and do it can't get their money out. Yeah, <laughs> that's interesting. And there, there, there's some uh, developments I'll touch on later with regard to Europe and China in that regard. But I might just turn our attention now to COVID vaccines and the challenges in the distribution of those. So in Europe, situation we have in Europe, I'll just give you a a quick overview. So the UK, I think, was uh, first up to the mark. So they were the first to approve the Pfizer vaccine. I think possibly in the world, they were the first to approve the Pfizer vaccine. So they started earlier, and they, they also have the Moderna and the AstraZeneca already approved. And their rollout is probably the fastest of all the European countries. They expect to have all their adults vaccinated with one of the vaccines or another by mid-July. So we're talking, you know, just in in about six months. In terms of the rest of Europe, the rest of Europe, uh, the European Union is approaching it as a unit. Uh, So they're procuring vaccines as a unit, and then they're allocating the vaccines on a country basis as a proportion of population. And my country, Ireland, is is in that mix as well. So the European Union has approved Pfizer and Moderna, I think, so far. And AstraZeneca is due, that's which is the, the Oxford vaccine, is due to be approved on January the 29th. And then the countries are getting their allocation, but their rollout is different because it's a responsibility of each nation state then to do its uh, distribution. So the two fastest countries so far have been uh, two small countries, Denmark and, and Ireland. Here in Ireland, we're second, Denmark is first. Um, and in Ireland, at least, we expect to have 4 million people, which is basically 80% of our population, vaccinated by September. So that's kind of the speed we're at. And the AstraZeneca, which is going to be approved soon, uh, they say is a kind of a game changer because it doesn't require that super cold chain 
that the Pfizer requires, which it has lots of supply chain challenges. So it just needs normal refrigeration temperatures. And the J&J vaccine, which is coming as well later, uh, also only needs normal uh, cold chain. And another big game changer there is that it's a single dose vaccine as opposed to the others, which are double dose. So that's the situation here in, in Europe. There have been some some criticism within the European Union, within some countries, criticism of, of their own system. So the Germans are criticizing their own distribution and there's some problems in Spain they're criticizing as well, how efficient their own people have been in getting the vaccines out. So Becky, um, in the US, I guess there's a promise there from the incoming administration uh, that they will uh, get 100 million vaccines administered in the first 100 days of the new uh, administration. So I guess that's about a, just under a third of the population. So a um, couple of questions for you. How far has it gone so far under the, the existing administration, under the Trump administration? And is this also a state-level responsibility in, in the US? And do you see Biden's plan as being uh, viable? Um, what are the challenges and so on? Yeah, I as you were talking about how the EU is handling it, I was interested in the parallels because here uh, under the Trump administration, the federal government got stuff to the states, and I'm not quite sure what that even means. Uh, it, does, does that mean they sent it all to the capital? You know, what does that mean that they've distributed it to the state? And then each state, and we have 50 of them plus territories, et cetera, is on their own to put it out. Um, our states are not set up uh, structurally or, or capability-wise to manage this kind of distribution within the state. So each state, the variability is very high depending on how seriously they took appointments to state health bureaus but also in how their distribution thinking at the state level exists. I don't think there's been a single state that's done it well so far. Some have been bad and some have been god awful. The advantage we have coming in now, I think, is that under the Biden administration, there will be much better, and this is a projection, I understand, but I completely expect much better communication with the states uh, and the more involvement of military expertise in the distribution process. And it's the distribution that is failing miserably. Uh, in this country, we've only put in arms about a third of what has been shipped. So there's inventory around somewhere in all of 50 states. The question is, where is it and who's given it out? And some people have taken the governor-led who gets it first instructions so seriously that we've thrown up vaccine because if the governor in my state says 80 and over first and the governor in the state next says 65 and over first, people are crossing state lines. Uh, people are, you know, and you can't get an appointment. So you go show up someplace and but they won't give it to you because of paperwork. So, you know, we tend to be a real bureaucracy here, and, and two of our worst bureaucratic endeavors are healthcare and government. And when you combine those two together, we've created our own nightmare. But I think we can do a lot under a Biden administration. Now, whether we'll hit 100 million in arms in 100 days, I don't know, but I am very confident we'll come much closer than we did to the 20 million by December of the uh, still current administration. It's curious, um, the similarities, but also the differences. So the the challenge in the US, 
doesn't seem to be supply. You have the vaccines in the States, it's the administration or the application. Whereas here, our people are saying, we can we can administer as much vaccine as they give us, we can't get the supply fast enough. So it's an interesting kind of contrast. So um, Evan, I heard, and I don't know whether this is uh, true or not, but I heard that Australia is taking a wait and see approach to the vaccines and they're saying, oh, we'll just wait and see if these guys grow mm. horns or what happens to them. So what's, what's going on? in Australia? Well, Patrick, we've been kind of a bit lucky if you think about it. Yeah. Back in March last year, we got to watch what happened in Europe, particularly Italy, and with horror. And because we're an island and we're a long way away, we did a reasonable job, all things considered, of keeping it out of this country. Uh, now, there's been a few hot spots, and we've got certainly an, an interesting, um, you talk about state premiers, we got, what, seven territories, Becky, not 50. But, you know, one of our... Um, State premiers, you know, did a four or five month lockdown. You know, we went from stop the curve to just eliminate the thing. Um, it's quite weird. Um, but we just have very few cases, Patrick. So we get the opportunity to sit back and wait and watch. Yeah. yeah. So uh, what are you seeing, uh, Dave? What, what do you think will be the, the challenges when it is administered? I guess you'll, you'll, you'll wait and see, but then I guess the point will come where you've got to take a decision and uh, administer it to the population, right? Well, they call us the lucky country for a reason, Patrick. We've got lots of things going in our, in our favour, I guess, because one of the things, of course, is we don't have that many people to vaccinate. Like, I mean, we've got, what, 25 or 26 million people in the whole country uh, in the size of the US. So clearly uh, distribution will be our biggest challenge, depending on which vaccine we actually take on. Um, I don't know that we're very well uh, set up to, to deal with the um, Pfizer vaccine because of the, the cold chain requirements, but you know, there's just not a lot of that deep cold stuff around. Uh, certainly not as much as normal culture type activities, but um, you know the government's done a reasonable, reasonably good job here in the sense that it's got its hands on multiple sources. So we, we've got arrangements from pretty much all of the companies that are producing vaccines. Um, so we, you know, from a source perspective, we're probably down the curve a little. We were behind um, everybody else. So our risk, I guess, is that the, the, the manufacturing plants can't push out enough for the US, the, the, the uh, Europe, et cetera, and Asia, et cetera, and Australia, even though we only got a small, relatively small uh, batch to distribute. I, I think that Evans hit, hit the nail on the head. We, we are in a very fortunate position. We can sit and wait. Um, we don't have you know hundreds of thousands of people with this. Uh, my state of Queensland, for example, has had six deaths in the 12 months. And if you look at uh, aged care facilities, um, uh, deaths to uh, influenza and a few of the other things, they've almost come to a standstill. Mm. So all of the practices that, that we've been in, in had to take on to deal with COVID ha have helped prevent a lot of other issues as well. So as much as all of our governments are very um, hypersensitive, uh, my hometown of Brisbane, for example, we got locked down for a, a weekend because we had one case of the UK strain come in from overseas. It was in quarantine. It wasn't in the community, but they locked the place down anyway. Mm. So, Does, does know, Australia have its own approval body like the FDA in the US and the EMA in Europe? Yeah. Yes, we do. A thing called the Therapeutic Goods Association, the TGA. 
Mm. And uh, they are taking a, a wait and see approach, as Evan mentioned, to, to see what's going on in the other yeah. in the other countries to see whether there's any major reactions and so forth. They're certainly looking at Norway very closely at the moment because of what happened there the other day, um, where they've got some aged people have died as a result of the of the vaccine. So you know, yeah. we are the lucky country for many many reasons, Patrick. Yeah, yeah. I think I think the the people in in um... Norway, I don't know whether it's as a result of, but rather after having. Yes. Is, that, is that the case? So yes. they're not quite sure whether it's because of or whether it's unrelated. But um, and, uh, Can I ask you a question, please? Sure, yeah. Your country is doing very well in getting the vaccine out to people, but we are doing this broadcast remotely because your country is under complete lockdown right now. Correct. Uh, so it would seem that you guys, uh, I'll call it behaved well, then went crazy at Christmas because you thought you were doing so well, and now you're paying for Christmas. Um, over the coming weeks and months, as you get the vaccine, how do you think that's impacting people's willingness to get the vaccine? Uh, we have, there's some resistance here. I mean, you know how Americans are. There's always yeah, resistance yeah. to everything. The, the, the resistance to vaccination here doesn't seem to be a major factor. Um, so there's been discussion of it in the media, as you, you would expect. And particularly, you know, the, the radio shows with the call in or the, uh, the text in, you get some people voicing doubts uh, about it. So one, one gentleman actually this morning on a, on a show I was listening to said that his wife had been vaccinated and after having the vaccine, uh, she became ill with COVID and he wondered whether it was because of the vaccine. And uh, there was an expert on the show who said, no, it wasn't because of the vaccine. It's just that when you are vaccinated, if your immune system is, is, is depleted and you're exposed in the days thereafter, there's a small chance you can be infected and that she was infected after having the vaccine, but not because she had the vaccine. Because, in fact, my understanding of the Pfizer vaccine is that it is uh, synthetic. So it's impossible for it to cause you to develop the illness. So she had to be infected uh, from an outside source. So, you know, there are some some people who have qualms like that, but it doesn't seem to be a major factor. I think we, we probably get 80, 90 percent um, acceptance um, there's a good track record here in general of, of vaccine acceptance. What that has done, Patrick, at least here, and I think Alan Joyce, the CEO of Qantas, might have uh, started this conversation, but there's a lot of talk about whether companies have the right now to to prevent those who are not vaccinated to, to be in, in the workplace, in restaurants, on flights. There's a lot of conversation here around those sorts of restrictions. You know, where, what, what rights do we have? Yeah, there's talk about that here. In fact, it, it transpired that um, th there haven't been any cases of uh, healthcare workers refusing to have the vaccine. But if they do refuse, apparently the the employer, which is the, the state essentially here, cannot prevent them from going on the ward. They can say, no, I'm not having it and I'm going to work and they can't stop them. Um, so maybe that will maybe that will change. Um, so I, I guess as we're coming into the last few minutes of the podcast, um, might just double back on China that we touched on earlier. So as we were saying, China has become the um, factory of the world over the last 20 years or so, 20, 30 years. That kept the lid on inflation for a, for a long time as we um, enjoyed all of these uh, consumer uh, products. And we've got to a situation now where many European, American, Australian manufacturers depend on supplies of raw materials and intermediaries and so on. Um, 
um, the iPhone, as we know, is assembled in in China. But we've had a change over the last number of years. So we've had the tension uh, with the US and um, and the EU, predating Trump, but it kind of intensified during Trump's years, particularly on the on the US front. But it seems now that the US and the EU are going different ways. So Trump has went down the road of a kind of a trade war of sorts, and the EU has just agreed a comprehensive agreement on investment with China, providing enhanced market access for investors and fair treatment for uh, EU companies. So it looks like the EU is is viewing China as too big to isolate and seems to be kind of opting for engagement. So, um, Becky, in the US then, how how important is China to American uh, supply chains and where do you see the relationship going from here with with the new administration? Uh, it certainly depends on industry. We first moved a lot of production to China for cheap labor. And while cheap to us, it helped raise living standards in China. And then through that, the Chinese market grew significantly from where it had been before. So there is a movement to leave China, uh, not necessarily to reshore to the United States. There's certainly some reshoring going on for any number of uh, political and economic reasons. Uh, But a lot of people are also leaving China now because of concerns about the environment and concerns about human rights. So as American companies become more interested in improving the standard of living as opposed to increasing profitability and sales right now, they're starting to look at, at countries like China that have some very untoward labor practices Uh, also have some untoward environmental practices. So there's a lot going on that's changing the business relationships with China. I don't know of any country that wants to um, exclude China from everything related to their business. Uh, I think that'd be short-sighted and silly, but I think companies here are starting to look at China very differently. Instead of as a source of cheap labor and as a huge market, They're starting to look at a lot of the secondary issues. Um, We just had a president that operated on a whim. The Chinese government can operate on a whim. Look at Hong Kong as one example. Hmm. So uh, I I think we're starting to look at it from a more strategic standpoint and a longer term standpoint than just helping our bottom lines. Okay, so you might see engagement strategically and confrontation strategically and pressure and lots of different things in the mix. Guys, in Australia, it seems to be a similar approach to the American approach. Is that, is, although I guess you're more, you're more exposed in the sense that both the US and the EU are kind of peers, you know, they're big beasts like China, but Australia has to play a different game, right? So how do you, how do you see it, Dave? Yeah, I do. Uh, and that's also down to the fact that we've got lots of things that China wants. So, you know, they, they still want to be able to, to trade with us as well. You're talking about the offshoring. Uh, I read an article recently to see that Foxconn is moving to Vietnam. So they've actually made the decision to shift. So that, that, that's, that's actually quite a large, um, large company and a big signal, I think. Uh, to Becky's point before about uh, the slavery, there's a number of new pieces of legislation coming around and uh, the Australian government has just released one around um, manufacturing companies needing and distribution companies needing to be able to make declarations that they have taken steps to ensure that there are no slavery activities and those sorts of things 
happening within their supply chains. So that's going to be an area where this over time is going to become a bigger deal for a lot of companies. Um, reasonable size companies are going to have to start taking this seriously and taking steps to ensure that those sorts of practices aren't happening within their supply chains. Okay, we leave the last word on uh, Australia, China to, to you, Evan. What's your parting uh, comment? <laughs> I think we have been slightly over-reliant on China, um, particularly in the last you know, 10 or 15 years. I think China's behaviour towards us, you know, from a political world stage kind of thing, um, banning exports has just opened everyone's eyes um, and forcing us to find new markets. We'll continue to trade with China for a long, long time. I mean, they are very important to us, but I think we're going to spread our risk as a yeah, country yeah. now. And I'm a bit excited about that. And those alternative markets, would they be other Asian markets? So, you know, we're talking um, Indonesia and Philippines and uh, Southeast Asia and so on. Well, uh, it depends. I mean, from a supply point of view, you want to get stuff made there. I don't think you want to sell our stuff there because mm. you know, we tend to sell high-end stuff, high-end food, you know, high-end manufacturing, smart stuff because you know, of the reasons David said before. Yeah, and so, so a free trade deal with the EU or with the UK is what you want, yeah? Oh, I think we do, and I think it's going to happen. Uh, we're excited to be trading with our, you know, <laughs> with England again instead of the <laughs> EU, mate. <laughs> Very good. Okay, well, guys, uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you today, and, and many thanks for being here with me today. Thanks for having us, Patrick. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks also to our listeners. And remember that if you would like to know more about how I can help you to formulate and implement international business strategies that deliver, check out my blog on albalogistics.com and my book, International Supply Chain Relationships, which you can pick up on Amazon, Google Books or Apple Books. Thank you for listening and keep well until next time. Music.